We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Well, good morning. If you are out in the hallway, if you want to make your way in this morning, we'll begin here in just a moment. Um, but first, I wanted to pass on greetings from the Postiff family there in Brookings, South Dakota. Um, enjoying some family time away. So pray for them as they travel home this coming Tuesday. And uh, so in light of that, we have with us Brother Dr. Snowberger from Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, where he is professor of systematic theology and apologetics. And um, we're thankful for his time with us this morning. And I know uh, he probably primarily came to see those two little grandchildren of his. And so we're thankful that they can spend some time together. But uh, let me open in prayer, and then we'll invite Dr. Snowberger this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time and for the opportunity to gather as the body of Christ. Lord, may uh, our hearts be challenged this morning by the word as it's brought to us by our brother, Dr. Snowberger. We thank you for his ministry at the seminary and also today behind the pulpit. And uh, may you bless him and guide him as he speaks. We pray, pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. You can... Open, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. Book of Habakkuk. The plan here uh, is to work through this book in three sessions today. So uh, they're all independent of each other. But if you're here this morning, you have the opportunity to get all three. So uh, so you're in on the ground floor, and uh, we'll work our way through uh, first first chapter this morning, second uh, chapter in the uh, in the, in the uh, main worship hour and then chapter three tonight, although I will still one verse from chapter two here in the Sunday school hour because I think we've got a bad chapter division. So uh, we'll go ahead and go from verse one, chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse one uh, this morning. Many of you remember 22 years ago, right, when uh, the uh, World Trade, Trade Towers were struck by those two planes, uh, and if you're old enough to remember that, uh, we were all startled by two airplanes being uh, swallowed up by the by those two buildings. Horrified to see people jumping from the upper stories as those buildings burned, uh, and we all wondered where things might go. Right? We were a little bit worried. All of us, I think. Was there going to be more terror? Was there going to be some sort of more significant global conflict take place? Christians even were left wondering, what, what exactly is God doing? It seems a little bit out of character, perhaps, we might think. And in the weeks that followed, a number of prominent Christians, of course, were interviewed on uh, various radio shows and blogs and such. I don't know how many blogs were around then, but there were a few. And a major question that was asked several times, was where, where was God on 9-11? What was he doing? And the answers varied greatly. 
Some saw the remarkably low death toll. There were a number of providential factors that kept the buildings relatively empty on that day. Perhaps God was at work uh, keeping people alive. Uh, some saw, people, saw in this an, an, an exposure of extraordinary evil uh, that God permitted so that the world would be awakened and respond to it. Some saw a, a, a judgment of God on America for shutting him out of American life, the American education system, the American financial system represented by those buildings. Some saw it not as punishment but as chastening. So again, a call to, to come back, to turn back to God in prayer and repentance. And among the many responses I read and heard, no two respondents really said the same thing. They all said something a little bit different. fact is, we don't know exactly what happened when those two buildings collapsed. We can only speculate. That's been true of disasters from the beginning of time. Always remark on, on uh, there's a there's an account in the book of Luke of a of a tower at Siloam that fill, fell and 42 people died, and the question again was circulating: Why were those 42 people die die? And God and, and Jesus gives a little bit of a window. He says, "What? Well, don't imagine that those 42 people were worse than everybody else." Okay, so and and that's all he said. He didn't give. A completely satisfying answer, but it probably gives us as much as any uh, to, to let us know what was going on on that day. We can only speculate what's going on. Tsunamis, hurricanes, nuclear disasters, mass shootings, things like this happen routinely. And we don't know what God is doing, but I think we can use these events as platforms for understanding the character of God who has decreed and has known of these events since before the foundation of the world. And for the next uh, three sessions we'll have, I'd like to look a bit at the character of God in a situation that's strikingly similar to that event at 9-11, one uh, faced by the obscure prophet Habakkuk about 2,600 years ago. And as we look through this book, we have a similar question being asked. Where was God, what was God doing when Jerusalem fell, when when uh, the Babylonians came in and took Jerusalem, exile, most of its habit inhabitants went to Babylon, and everything seemed to be in a tailspin, didn't look even perhaps like the nation would survive. And so there's all kinds of questions that are being asked. And as we, a as we observe how God answers this question, I think we get a good sense as to how to respond when we ask the same questions uh, in, this, in a 21st century context. But secondly, I think we also have an idea how we ought to appeal to God when tragedy hits close to home. So what, does a, what does a response of faith look like when a public disaster occurs or when a personal disaster occurs? And quite frankly, you'll probably have more of the latter than the former, former right? There's, there's going to be big events that happen in the world, but there's events that happen to you your family, your community that happened. Is it, and is, it, is it okay to blame God? Is it right to challenge God? Is it right to question God? What, what, it, what, is, what is the properly nuanced verb that we can use in our response to God? 
And these are the kinds of questions that are addressed in the book of Habakkuk. And if we can get a handle, I think, on what God tells Habakkuk in this book, I think we'll all be better prepared to handle the disaster, small and great, that God sends our way. Uh, This morning's Sunday school session will include a little bit of background material, more synopsis of the book. Uh, So it's going to be a little bit more heavy on the teaching end of things, but tends to be appropriate for Sunday school, right? A little bit lighter on application, uh, the uh, sermons in the, uh, the morning session in morning worship, and tonight we'll have a little bit more application, so we'll try and balance that out. So we want to start a little bit here, before we even read uh, the first chapter here, uh, with a little bit of historical background on the book of Habakkuk. I find that after, you'll recall, right, and I know that uh, your pastor spends more time in the Old Testament than most pastors I know, which I think is a great thing. You get a little bit of background, right, and so you're, I know this church is familiar, more familiar than many, uh, but you're, you're, you'll remember that after the death of David and of his son Solomon, uh, the, the kingdom of Israel split into two separately governed countries, nine and a half northern tribes, sometimes called Ephraim or Israel. Uh, Ephraim was the largest, most dominant tribe of the ten. And then the uh, second The two and a half uh, southern tribes were commonly called Judah, again named for the most dominant uh, land land mass there, which is Judah. The northern tribes were consistently and progressively evil throughout the entirety of their existence, and it seems that for this reason, God was more quick to judge these tribes. So after 225 years as an independent nation about, this this group was plundered, captured, scattered uh, by the Assyrian Empire in 723 B.C. So, <clears throat> so thoroughly that even today we sometimes speak of the ten lost tribes of Israel. They were they were they were scattered. <coughs> the two southern tribes had some spiritual ups and downs, um, and it does seem that the the uh, the revivals that took place. Uh, were the reason why God extended the life of that nation a little bit longer. So 350 years they existed as a separate nation. A majority of the kings even here were evil. But there were a few bright moments of reform over the centuries. And the last of the good kings was Josiah. But in the last, even in the last days of Josiah's reign, he got involved in international politics, and it turned out to be his undoing. Okay, and of course, when he died, that's when Isaiah is written. In the year King Uzziah died, and Josiah, uh, when these these the, when these kings uh, begin to die, things start to unravel. Okay, um, and we find here that Egypt, in the last few days of Josiah's reign. Uh, Egypt comes up through the land of Judah to join Assyria in fighting the Babylonians. Okay, so this, it's, this is this is this is the uh, the birth of the worldwide empires that are uh, that are that are starting to take place here. So Egypt and Assyria, uh, the major powers, they're they're coming together to squash Babylon. Of course, we're no, we know what happens, right? Babylon actually. 
surprisingly wins and goes on to establish probably uh, the, the largest world empire, at least in in the Mediterranean, uh, the, in, in the Mesopotamian life uh, that we've seen. Okay, and so uh, we find that Josiah is upset with the fact that Egypt is using their country as a broad highway for their army. And so he gets upset and goes out to challenge the Egyptian pharaoh, who is Necho. And uh, we can find this documented in First Chronicles 35. The Egyptian leader said, Josiah, just stand aside, get out of the way, and you'll be fine. But Josiah insists on going to war, a lot of intrigue that goes on there, but I'm not going to get into that too much. Uh, and so he goes to war, was killed. And for the next year, four years, the Egyptians rule over Judah through a puppet king that they set up in Jerusalem. And they ruled with a heavy hand, and the Jews suffered mightily. But in an astonishing turn of events, as we know, the Babylonians actually conquer Egyptian and Assyria. Um, and so the Babylonians, called in our book here the Chaldeans, uh, paved the way here for Babylon to take over the entire Middle East, including Israel. And so Babylon, Babylon sort of takes over uh, the, uh, the, the rulership of Judah in its last few days. But things look rather grim, rather dire uh, for the people of Judah at this time. Now, the Bible doesn't specifically state when Habakkuk prophesied, but I think we can put some pieces together from this first chapter and figure it out. So let's read this chapter now, um, and we'll be able to continue to put the historical puzzle together and then uh, make some application here. So the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you do not hear? I cry out for to you violence, but you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me, there's strife and contention. Therefore, the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. This is God's response here. I will do a work in your days which you will not believe, though, I told, though it were told to you. Okay, so God comes with a response to uh, Habakkuk's plea. He says, I'm going I'm 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 to act. I am raising up the Chaldeans, he says in verse 6, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They're terrible, dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. When his mind changes, he transgresses, he commits offense, and ascribes this power to his God. Now Habakkuk responds to God's answer. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have disappointed them for judgment. O O rock, you have marked them out for correction. But your eyes are are purer than to behold evil. You cannot look at wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook, they catch them with a net, gather them in a dragnet, and therefore they rejoice and are glad. And they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet, because by them their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch, and I will set myself on the rampart and watch to see what God will say to me, and what I will answer after I am corrected. So here in verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk begins his questions by asking why God is not doing anything about the problem of sin. But his description indicates that Habakkuk has a specific sin in view, and it's the recalcitrance of the people of Judah, his own people. He says here in verse 4 that the sin was a failure to keep the law. The law is not being observed. So that's the Mosaic law is still in effect, but is not being regularly observed. So it's not being kept, not being enforced. And since God's nation was the only group that's ever even acknowledged the law of Moses, the sin in view is certainly there. So he's concerned that the Judahites after the death of Josiah and the entrance of these puppet kings, they are not observing the law at all. And they're becoming rampant in their behavior, and to a, to a great, great degree, in fact. And so we conclude that Habakkuk must be writing these words sometimes after the death of Josiah, but before the Chaldeans, these these hasty, these bitter, hasty nation that's going to be uh, raised up in verse 6 has occurred. So it's been those four years uh, after Egypt deposes Josiah and Babylon, Babylon rushes in to invade uh, the people of Israel. So it probably takes place somewhere between 609 B.C. and 605 B.C. So that's probably our best guess as to when this book was written. But Habakkuk finds God's answer, that the Chaldeans are going to be his answer to prayer, that they would be the agents of divine judgment and justice. He finds them difficult to accept for a couple of reasons. First reason is military and historical. Uh, The the Battle of Carchemish, uh, which is where the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Egyptians all come together, uh, if you're going to put any battles into your, into your memory bank of some of the most important battles in world history, this is one of them. Uh, it, it, it really ends the, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the season of regional empires and replaces them with world empires, which ultimately culminate, probably makes their zenith here in the Roman Empire. Uh, so it's a huge, it's a very, very important battle here. Uh, but going into this battle, Babylon seems to be the decided underdog. They're the young upstart. 
they're, they're not a particularly powerful people. Egypt and Assyria together should have been able to crush the Babylonians, but it didn't happen that way. And, but, but Habakkuk going in says, this, this can't be the right answer, God, because the Chaldeans, they are not going to win this conflict. But the second reason for Habakkuk's doubt, and the one that he really explains here, was theological. He cannot imagine how a holy God, who in verse 13 is of purer eyes than to behold evil, cannot look favorably at wickedness, how is he going to look favorably on those who deal treacherously? So, so his concern is there's, there's no way that God is going to use those mightily wicked Babylonians to, uh, to, to punish the naughtiness of Judah. Now, I recognize all sin is sin, um, and, but there are degrees of sin, right? And the Babylonians were engaging in a greater degree of sin uh, than the Judahites were. So it seemed like, you know, using a proverbial hatchet uh, to kill the fly. Um, and so this gives us an occasion, I think, to look a bit at Habakkuk himself. So he responds rather incredulously at God's answer to his immediate prayer. And so I, I, I think this gives us a, a window to look at his, his character um, and uh, his place in the story here. Well, verse 1 of the whole chapter describes him as a prophet. I don't want to make assumptions here. I think most of you probably know what a prophet is, but lest there be doubt, because, because I think there is an emphasis sometimes that is overplayed. A, 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 a prophet is a spokesman for God rather simply, someone who is a spokesman for God. Now, sometimes a prophet would also tell the future, which is sort of the meaning that prophecy has sort of garnered in the modern day. But uh, a biblical prophet was simply a spokesman for God. Sometimes he predicted the future, but very often he simply would give answers uh, from the mouth of God for specific questions that the, the ruler had. Of course, the prophets were, uh, up till this point, uh, were, were functioning uh, during the, the theocracy, okay? Theocrat, theocracy, theocracy uh, rule. So the rule by God of the nation of Israel. Now, he ruled chiefly through kings and through laws, but direct revelation from God himself was available to kings if they wanted it. And if they sought it, which they did rarely, but it was available. The king could get a direct message from God through the priests and their Urim and Thummim, uh, or they could inquire of the prophets. Now, exactly how the prophets received their messages is not always clear. Sometimes it appears that they simply opened their mouth and God spoke for them, through them. Other times they were given a message audibly by God and were, uh, came and, 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 and brought that message received in secret and make it public. In this case, uh, it appears that Habakkuk saw the message. That's what the word says. The prophet Habakkuk saw this burden or oracle. And this suggests that he had gotten his message through some sort of a dream or a vision perhaps. 
But in addition to being a spokesman to God for the nation, a prophet was also a spokesman for the nation to God. In fact, if, as you read, you found that Habakkuk is a very bold prophet in this regard. He, he wants to represent his people to God. And so he asks God some very direct questions in an attempt to understand what he's doing. We've already seen him uh, ask pointed questions in verses 2 to 4. Why do you allow sin to continue? Why don't you do something about it? But now he, we come to verses 12 to the end of the chapter, uh, and we find that he asks another battery of questions here. How can a holy and just God use the wicked Babylonians to punish Judah? The Babylonians are worse than the Judahites. This seems to be the wrong response, and he humbly waits for a response to these questions. And after God answers in chapter 2, We'll get to in the uh, worship service. God responds, uh, Habakkuk responds again in chapter 3, this time with something more akin to a psalm uh, than a prayer. I mean, it's, it's a prayer in the form of a psalm, which means he probably crafted it over the course of time. Okay. The, the psalmist didn't just uh, blurt out their psalms. They, they, had to, they, had to, they had to write them. It's poetry. It's an art form. Uh, so it appears that uh, the, the third chapter then is uh, Habakkuk's uh, uh, artistic response here, his psalm of response uh, to God uh, put in mnemonic form uh, so that it can be referenced and easily memorized uh, by the people. And so he responds here, great humility, with this beautiful psalm, which we'll address in tonight's sermon for those of you who can be here. And I think we find here in Habakkuk an excellent example of how we're supposed to approach God when things go terribly wrong. And things will go terribly wrong, right? And that's where I want to spend a little bit of time here in this morning's session as we start begin our study of responding to personal or national crises when they hit. Um, the fact is you won't have time to develop a plan of how to response when the crisis comes, right? You need to establish patterns now uh, for faith in God when it's perhaps easier to trust in God, not when the emotions are reeling during a crisis. And that's what Habakkuk, the man, gives us in this book. I think it's a pattern here of faith in the middle of crisis, and that's the big idea we want to stress this morning. You need to develop patterns of faith right now to gear you up, prepare you for the times of crisis to come. And so, after that somewhat lengthy introduction, let's examine the pattern that Habakkuk gives to us and adopt it for ourselves. First, we find he was persistent in his prayer. Verse 2 says that he had spent a long time in prayer. A long time. How long, he says, do I need to pray? Which implies, of course, that he has been praying for some time, asking for God to respond. Now, this book is only three chapters long and perhaps was composed in a day. But Habakkuk's prayer that precipitated the book was long in coming, years. And God's answer wasn't immediate. He had been crying out to God, it says, for a long time. And I'm reminded of a song in your hymnal 
that is particularly appropriate to this response. Third verse of Spirit of God, descend on my heart. Teach me to know that thou art always nigh. Teach me the struggles of the soul to bear, to check the rising doubt, the rebel sigh. Teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. There's an important message, I think, for all of us in these words. When a disaster hits you or your community or even your whole country, don't be too quick to blurt out the cheap answer of what you know God to be doing. Spend time in earnest prayer. Inquire of God. It's a question that is worthy of being asked and answered. But we don't know fully the mind of God. In fact, never will. The fact is, even in retrospect, 20 years later, we can't say what God was doing on 9-11. We recognize that in his providence, everything is working together for the, the goals that God has established for his universe. But even now, we wonder, how, did, how exactly did that fit in? And we have some, perhaps some half-baked preliminary answers, but the fact is we don't have a clean answer from God, and, and we may never. Even in eternity, we, we might not know how everything uh, was fitting together. But we do know this. God was doing something. It wasn't as though he was, you know, distracted and something happened under his watch that he just wasn't prepared for. And so we need to do everything in our power to make sure not so much that we know exactly what God is doing, but so that we know exactly how we're supposed to respond in situations like that. Which leads us then to our second characteristic of Habakkuk's response. First, persistency in prayer. But secondly, he had God's interest in view. Okay, see, he, he had a big picture. He knew that it wasn't just a, a narrow thing, what's happening to me or happening to my people. It's, it's something that God is doing to further his broad ends. And oftentimes when a crisis hits, we, we become rather narrow in our focus, right? I, 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 even as I've preached this this morning, I, I've been thinking, you know, talking about the world empires. And the fact of the matter is they weren't world empires, uh, they were ancient, Eastern, ancient Near Eastern empires. There's much of the world that was not under their, un, un, under, their, under their rule. And yet, because that is the heritage from which we come, we somehow think it, it's, it's the thing. Um, and the fact is, much goes on outside of our little world. Uh, much goes on outside of our medium-sized world sometimes, right? But when... When, when disasters come, we, we tend to narrow our focus a little bit too much, become a little bit provincial. But Habakkuk here was concerned not so much about himself or even just for his people, but for the fact that God's law was being disregarded and that God himself was being disregarded. And then after God's first answer, it's, People are going to disrespect you, God, because they are going to suggest that you're not a just God. Okay, so, so Habakkuk has within his prayers uh, these requests, not only for the, on behalf of his people, but he, he is, he's trying to create a theodicy, right? He's, he's trying to make a defense for his God, and he wants, uh, uh, he wants to be able to say the best possible things about God, and he's just not seeing how this can possibly 
forward or further God's causes. And so he's concerned uh, that God is taking a hit in the popular approval polls, right? He's, he's concerned about that. He's concerned that justice is being perverted in the land and, uh, and his laws were being disregarded. He was concerned that God's reputation for holiness might be lost. And so here, I think, is an important lesson for us. Uh, Habakkuk's pattern, uh, and I think something that we should include in our prayers. Uh, when that son or daughter is injured or killed, or when that doctor comes out with a very, very uh, you know, sober expression and a, and a bad diagnosis, we shouldn't be asking God, why have you done this to me? Uh, we shouldn't be provincial in our thinking. Now, certainly that's a question to be asked, but I think a Christian tends to think a little bit more broadly about what God is doing. Because the reason the trial came was not just about you. Okay, It's about forwarding God's causes. Um, I think oftentimes when we, we share prayer requests in church, we offer instinctively requests for our trials to stop, right? Pray that my child gets better. Pray that the conflict ends. Pray that my financial crisis is averted. Pray that we'll all stay safe. And once since I'm very sympathetic with those requests, we do pray, as the psalmist says, the desires of our heart, right? Still, with Habakkuk as our example, we should also be praying and perhaps principally be praying for the advance of God's best interests in this trial. Now, we don't... That, I, well, I'm not saying just reduce your prayers to God's will be done, but there should be at least some place for that in our prayers, right? We, we should have in our minds here the idea that God has broad intentions that we may not be privy to, and so we place our situation in the hands of a providential God and trust that his will is ultimately our best interest, that's hard to do sometimes. I can remember my systematic theology professor, uh, Roland McCune, was diagnosed with cancer. Well, he was three times during his life. Third time took him a few years ago. But the second time, I was, I was right in the middle of my uh, seminary work, and uh, for some long-forgotten reason, I had to stop by his office, and uh, here, here he is, obviously suffering physically. And he's, he's poking away on his computer. And, uh, you, know, was, you know, he was an older man. Perhaps the computer didn't come as easily to him as, as some. Uh, but here he is poking away painstakingly. And ask what he's doing. Well, he's revising his class notes to teach next year. And I'm like, you know, Dr. McKinn, take a break a little bit. Think about yourself. Hey, the jury's still out whether you're even going to teach this again, you know. And, and, and not that I would have said that, uh, but but that that was that was a thought that went through my mind. And I, you know, his, his notes didn't really need much revising; they were pretty good as they stood. But he wasn't whining or despairing because God had made life difficult for him. Life didn't just stop for him. He was bent on glorifying God, no matter what God put on his plate. And though it took great effort and energy, he glorified God and became an example to me and to others around me of what it means to really believe in the sovereignty of God. 
we can all talk about believing in the sovereignty of God, but it's not until you get to that trial that you find out whether you really do. But it's something that doesn't come suddenly one day. It comes with having God's best interests in view over the course of weeks and months and years. In every circumstance, when life is great, when life is good, and when life turns sour. And we need to establish those patterns now uh, so that we can respond favorably then. Third example, third uh, characteristic of Habakkuk's response here. We said first he was persistent. He had God's interest view. And thirdly, I think we see that Habakkuk was reverent in his approach. Uh, When Habakkuk sat down in earnest prayer, he was not overly casual or familiar with God. He humbly approaches God as his sovereign. We see this a lot in the prophets. I like that line from Jeremiah, that God is not only a God near at hand, but also a God far away. Uh, We tend to reverse those, right? Okay, you know, God's my friend. He's not just far away, he's my friend. But actually, in the prophets, we see this reversed. We, we, We need to hold God up and out because he is better than us, different from us, and cannot be responded to with casualness. I remember a few years ago, uh, I was acquisitions libra- uh, librarian for the seminary for a number of years, and, and there was a, a series of book advertisements I have to read, and I remember seeing a title, Sit Down, God, I'm Angry. And I never saw the book and never ordered it, and perhaps I... Uh, you know, fell prey to the old axiom, you know, never judge a book by its cover or its title. But uh, the fact is, you just, you just don't say that to God. Sit down, God, I'm angry. You don't talk to him that way. He's not a debate partner. He's your sovereign. And if you're tempted at any point to be a little bit chippy with God, take, take, a, take just a few minutes and read the last five chapters of Job to settle yourself down and figure out the way way you're supposed to respond to God. Fourthly, I find that Habakkuk was patient. Patient. The first verse of chapter 2, again, I think there's a a bad chapter chapter break here, but uh, he says at the very end of his speech, I'm going to set my watch, stand my watch, set myself on a rampart, and continue praying, right? until I see what he will say to me and how I need to respond, having been corrected. Now God, uh, in in his mercy, in these days, would give his prophets a direct response. So he was looking for a verbal answer, which we shouldn't really expect. But we have a source of information about God that can answer troubling questions like this, right? What's our source? We've got this. So sitting down and waiting and watching for God to answer does not mean simply twiddling one's thumb and asking a question over and again. It's finding out what he's already said because this provides us a great amount of the answers here to his prayer. Okay. And when trials come then, We need to be all the patience and growing in our knowledge of God. James 1, 2 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
Instead, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if you lack wisdom, you're looking for the answers and aren't getting them. Ask God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So Habakkuk was patient in his quest for an answer. And then finally here, I believe Habakkuk had the faith to believe that there was an answer. There, there was an answer to the, the, this, this, tr- this trouble. Uh, he, he, had a, he, had a, he had a good theological head on his shoulders. He recognized uh, that, in fact, there is, it's not just random, not capricious, not just a series of mistakes that are occurring here, uh, but something is actually occurring, and God is completely in charge of it. He doesn't know what God is doing, but he had faith that whatever God was doing had an explanation. God can defend himself if he so chooses. God has a purpose in all trials, whether or not he divulges those purposes, and usually he doesn't, right? We, we, just, we just don't know why. Certainly we don't have a broad picture of why. And I think this is perhaps why we sometimes stumble when trials come. We conclude that there's no rhyme or reason to what's happening and that all we can do is hunker down and endure the trials instead of rising above and flourishing by finding that God is there. And Habakkuk had his moments of doubt, certainly. But he was ultimately grounded in the certainty that God was great and God was good, and that he could be trusted. And that's, that's how he, he ends the whole book. We're going to get through it. There's a stark fact revealed to us in the book of Hebrews, and I think it's important that we all remember, we all die, right? We all die. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So at some point, that prayer that you're asking for deliverance, uh, for, uh, for relief, uh, for improvement, for some sort of uh, recovery, the answer is going to be no. That's the way it is, right? That, that, that's how it ends. Uh, that, that, and uh, health and wealth gospel has no sense of this. and doesn't know what to do when people have a terminal condition. But we've all been diagnosed with a terminal condition. We're all going to die. More than any other peop- more than any other kind of psalm that we find in the Old Testament here in the book of Psalms is the psalm of lament. And they give us words to pray when we know the answer won't be a happy one, right? Now, now some of the uh, psalms of lament end with resolution and recovery. Many of them do not, but they end in confidence. Some of them just end. And, and, and I think it gives us sort of a sense of the way life is, right? And so we come to these psalms and we find ourselves there. And that's exactly what Habakkuk's going to do. He's going to give us a psalm. <clears throat> Jesus prayed this way on the cross, right? He prayed through Psalm 22. Because he saw himself reflected in the details of Psalm 22. Countless saints have used the next psalm, right? Psalm 23. 
in terminal circumstances, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, guiding me in this dark vestibule that will end this life and be a portal for the next. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you get to the place where you quote that verse in the darkness for the last time and you think about your surviving spouse and kids and your unfulfilled dreams? A lot of water has to go under the bridge, but here's one thing you have to do. You have to memorize it first or else you'll never quote it when you get to that place. As we're going to see in our next hour, Habakkuk's situation is not immediately terminal, although some very dark times lay ahead for them. But as we look at God's gracious response in the form of three, I'm going to see three key theological statements, benchmarks here in the second chapter, we discover that God is tacitly approving of Habakkuk's prayer and his response of faith to the crisis that he was facing. And so I think Habakkuk stands for us as a fine model of how we may prepare now and how we all can all make all the necessary adjustments in our thinking now to establish patterns now so that when that time comes, and it will, that we'll be prepared for them. And so the goal then here is for God to grant us all the grace to prepare to seek God in every crucible of life for his glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're grateful for this book that you've given to us, and as we explore its contents, Lord, I ask that we might uh, respond, even as Habakkuk has already, uh, but as he will uh, in, the, in the chapters to come. Lord, we anticipate what you have to give to us, and Lord, we ask that we would uh, be uh, apt students of the word as we look at your servant Habakkuk and the, uh, the, the great truths that are contained in this book. We pray in your name. Amen.